I think that people commonly think that like a good design systems designer is a really good Figma user or like they like build really beautiful components. And I think that that's definitely part of it. But I think that like fundamentally successful design systems designers are like intrinsically motivated to work on large, hairy, horizontal problems. They're the ones that can like really see the forest for the trees and want to be the one that's like bringing people together and building those connections. Welcome to Deep Dives. My name is Rid, and this is where we go deep with the best designers so that you can learn from their journey and apply it to your own career. Today, I'm talking with Lauren Laprete, who led design systems at Dropbox, and just a few months ago, she joined as the director of design systems at Cash App. So this conversation is all about what top performing design systems teams actually look like at scale. We talk about process, culture, hiring variables, and a lot more. But first, I wanted to learn more about why Lauren is so excited about her new role at Cash App. In every conversation I was talking to people, like they all cared so deeply about systems and had that same systems thinking that just ran through the company. And that is beyond just like people that are dedicated to the systems team, but like people on verticals that I talk to, people on more of our like brand side are very systems focused. And that was very inspiring. I think that I had spent over four years at Dropbox being kind of like the one person in design to really be beating the systems drum. And that got tiring. Like that was kind of just like, one person in the room that would always bring people down because they would be like, what about design systems? This is a pattern. This should be a component. Have you talked to this person? Now I'm in a, an org where everyone is thinking that way all the time and we're all like beating the drum together. The other thing that really excited me about the role was that when I first joined Dropbox, we were like on the precipice of releasing the first version of the new design system. And so that was a very exciting time. It was a very challenging time to like build out the system, evangelize the system and get to a certain threshold of adoption. And then it kind of like gets, it kind of becomes a slog, you know, like that maintenance mode time. I was excited about Cash App because we're again, like at that moment where we're, we just released a design system internally. There's so many things to figure out. How are people going to use this? And so it was back to that like infancy stage that I really love. You said something interesting. You talked about the brand team even being very systems oriented, which I don't hear that as often. Can you like share a little bit more? What does that actually mean for even the brand team to be having a systems mindset? I've noticed a trend in large tech organizations recently where there is a separate brand team that's a little bit like closer to product orgs. We had this example at Dropbox in the early years that I was there where there was essentially like a delegate from the brand team that was systems focused and they would help us identify like this is, if this is our token architecture, like what are the values that we're bringing? How are we creating prominence? How are we like thinking about the typeface as it relates to our componentry? And that Rita Troyer was that designer at Dropbox. Um, and she like really helped me see that there's an opportunity for brand designers to have that systems thinking to, in order to scale brand and product. And at Cash App, we have a similar model. We actually have like a tight partnership with a team called Product Creative. 
and they are working really closely with us to identify those things. Similarly to like typography, illustration, iconography, those things that are really kind of like systems and brand moments. And at Cash App, that team's led by Audrey Davis, and she's just like a brilliant systems thinker, but also like a brilliant brand thinker. And so it's like the best of both worlds. I love product creative as a name, even like really speaking to both sides. And I think it's cool that you mentioned the fact that it is in its infancy, this system and how exciting those moments are. And another kind of higher level idea that I like to think about is how special these moments are in our career where we get a little bit more of that blank canvas, either from an early system or even just like you're in right now, like this new role where you get this opportunity to kind of draw a line and say, okay, how can I take everything that I've learned over the past few years and figure out how to implement it in this new world with maybe less constraints than you were previously feeling. So what are some of the ways that you're trying to take advantage of that blank canvas at cash? When I joined Dropbox and I was trying to get system adoption, I thought it was that I needed like top-down mandate. And I thought that because I was only a, a low-level design manager that I didn't have the authority to like go tell teams that they had to adopt. And so what I realized in that time was that like influence and authority are not the same things. And the way that you can create influence without having that senior title is like way more influential for like a design systems practitioner, because you kind of want to be at the level where the people are in the weeds using the system so that they can give you feedback and you can like iterate on the system and you can kind of like build grassroots alignment and buy-in for adoption that will like naturally make the system more successful rather than getting some top-down leadership mandate that you have to adopt the system. I worked so hard at Dropbox to try and get that like authoritative mandate and was like, please, please, can you senior leadership care about this? And it never came. And so I spent months and months just waiting for that. And so with a clean slate, trying to go into this world where we're getting all the product teams to adopt a system, I have so many more tools in my toolbox to go from all angles, go from like the designers using the system to the design managers, all the way up to senior leadership and like influence at those different levels in order to be more successful about adoption. Can you talk a little bit more about what that tool belt looks like for you? The other thing I realized is you really can't get systems adoption without getting like product investment. It's really easy to sell a design system to designers and engineers, maybe more so to engineers because it's like reusable code is like, oh yeah, everyone seems to want that. Designers, there's like a little bit shakiness. You're taking away my creativity by giving me these colors that I can only work in. But part of my tool belt is like, I just need like product influence in this space because Ultimately, every company I've worked at, product owns the roadmap, owns the capacity planning. And so the more that you can like find product partnership and find a systems thinking product manager, the more successful you're able to like articulate the value and drive adoption in that layer. I'm not saying that you need a product manager dedicated to design systems. You just need to be able to learn from them to like speak that language 
And so you can sell it broadly across these product teams. I think that the toolkit kind of differs at every level. Like if you're thinking about how you approach designers using the system, you don't want to come off like a cop. The only way that I'll be successful in getting the system adopted is if like you're happy using the system. And so how you relate to those designers and how you talk to them and how you like build those feedback loops, that's super important. They need to trust you if they're going to try and use the system. I love systems, but I've never worked on a team the size of Cash or Dropbox. And I'd love to get just a little bit more clarity into what that actually looks like and how the team functions. So can you share like, how many people are actually working on the system and what are the different roles and responsibilities within that team makeup? Yeah, I can share a little bit about kind of like my recent experience at Dropbox as well as Cash. And I think that it's reflective of the like level of maturity of the system as well. So at Dropbox, we were at the largest, a team of seven on the design org. At one point I had a dedicated PM that reported to me. And then we had a dedicated engineering team at the same size. We had like six engineers dedicated to React building our web products. And we had two like semi-dedicated engineers, one on iOS and one on Android. So it was like a pretty large team. And we were at a level of maturity towards the end of it where each designer on my team really had like their area of responsibility. So. There was one person that was like really the library steward and they like made sure that all of the branches were reviewed, that all of our documentation was in order. They also were responsible for our component backlog. They managed a lot of the bug fixes on like the UI kit itself. And then other designers would be kind of delegated to other specific areas where they would have authority. It doesn't mean that they always stayed in that lane like you might see on a product team but they were like the ones that I owed to be accountable for those spots. So one of my designers at Dropbox, she was really interested in, in accessibility. I wouldn't say that she like came into the role and she had a lot of accessibility experience, but it was one area of the system that she really wanted to like deep dive on. And so we took that opportunity and attached it with like the VP of designs OKRs around ensuring that our product was accessible and that product designers knew how to build accessible products. And so it was semi-systems adjacent, but she was able to build tools and programming around up-leveling the accessibility knowledge across the product design org. And so my team started to operate more like, I like to use the reference of like soccer teams. So you look at five-year-olds playing soccer and they're all kind of like swarming around the ball, like traveling ball. around the field together. And like, I think that that's very unproductive and that you really need to operate more like a varsity team. Everyone has that role and they're able to like build off and play off each other. And so while my designer was dedicated to accessibility, she was also building components, but it wasn't like she was responsible for maintaining the library or really knowing like the component backlog. She would just be able to like dip in and grab a task off that list while she was also driving the larger initiative around accessibility. I like this point about the variety of skills that together form like this high performing team. You also talked about the differences in maturity levels and how Cash App is kind of earlier in this systems process. 
How do the skills that are required for a design system team to really thrive, how do those change depending on where the team is at in the actual process of creating, establishing, and then maintaining a system over time? In its infancy, it's like an all hands on deck situation. If you have a spare moment, grab something off the massive backlog of things that you need to do. And also at that same point, you're like really trying to think through the foundations of the system. And that requires a lot of group think and a lot of collaboration. Cash App is kind of wrapping up that big initiative of like defining those foundations. And so I'm joining at a time where it's really a transition from this like swarming around big problem spaces, like what is our type scale? What is our token infrastructure? To a phase where we're like, okay, now we do really need someone who's going to maintain the system and someone who's going to evolve the system. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about rollout strategies in the early days of a system? Like basically, you know, saying here it is kind of thing versus more gradually over time. Do you have a take on that? I am laughing because like over the last couple of weeks, I found myself like brushing my teeth or like getting ready for bed and just like thinking about that very popular phrase from that movie, Field of Dreams, build it and they will come. <laughs> and like, I think so many people think that design systems are just like, oh, I built a really beautiful UI kit and like everyone's gonna use it and it's gonna be great. And like, that's not how it works at all. Like everyone's too busy to think about like, how are we going to migrate this? Can my existing screens work alongside some of the new components? And so the approach that I've taken is like, what are like the foundational elements that like really sell the system to the end customer? Like at the end of the day, they don't care if there's like 80% system adoption. The end customer is just looking for a cohesive app to build trust, to feel like this is like a well-considered high quality app so that you can have repeat customers and they can like have that trust to continue to use the product. That is the ultimate goal that the company wants that would fund a design system. And so I think that having an approach where you're like, okay, we're gonna roll out this system. What are the things that make the app more cohesive by adopting this system? Things like typography, color, those are like foundational elements that like really drive that consistency across the app. If your buttons are all different colors, if your buttons have different border radiuses, it starts to look like you're shipping the org chart. I think it's important to understand like what are the P0s in your library that you really want people to start using today. And ultimately, there's probably like a handful, five to 10 components that are like, these are super reusable. So there's like a ton of velocity gains. They're very robust components you're not having to solve the same problem over and over again, and it builds that trust with the end user. And so they're like the obvious ones, you know, buttons, <laughs> uh, navigation, inputs, controls, things that like a designer ultimately is probably not going to push back on too much. I've never really gotten to a phase where patterns are widely distributed from the design system, but I don't think patterns are the thing that you need to like go full steam ahead on for rollout. I think that that is like maybe a great vision for people to have, but requires so much more buy-in 
from the teams using the system before you can get to the patterns phase. Really quickly, just for people who are listening and you say the word pattern, and you're like, wait, what exactly does she mean by that? Can you explain that quickly? Yeah, totally. So if we're talking about like atomic design, there's like the atoms, molecules, and organisms. Atoms being tokens, molecules being components, organisms being things like patterns or templates. Large forms could be an example of patterns where it's like, this is the best practice for a lockup to use all of these components together. And so it's essentially like the recipe of all of the components coming together to create cohesive page level design. And design systems designers are pretty far away from like actual products being designed and built and like hearing from users directly through user research or understanding the product constraints. And so we have vision of what patterns can look like. And we're really great at like documenting those in order to scale them. But you really need the product designers that are building experiences with forms in order to define that pattern together. How likely is it that you think that you would define a set of patterns at cache and actually incorporate those into the system itself? I have a ton of optimism that we'll get there actually pretty quickly here. I think the challenge with patterns is that you have to move a team from being individually incentivized to collectively incentivized. And so that really depends on like the company culture. And already in my time here, I've seen so many conversations come through our design system support channel that are like, has anyone done onboarding flows? Has anyone done this like detail view flow? Like what are other people doing? They're naturally trying to do this like collective problem solving to have these pattern relationships. We just haven't had time to dedicate to like, what is that pattern library structure? How are we bringing in all of those collective thought to align on a pattern and then get people to to adopt it? I think that once our system gets wider adoption, we'll focus pretty heavily on that. I teach a lot about design systems in my course, but it's mainly like hard skill stuff. But inevitably still, we're in a live session and people will ask questions about, well, like, how do you communicate the intent behind this component? Or how do you let the team know that this new component exists or even track down what other people are working on? And you mentioned this channel experience and how there is a nice communication base happening right now. So maybe can you talk a little bit more about how you solve for this flow of communication within the context of design systems and maybe any tactics that you have to help people stay on the same page? I like to tell designers that are working on design systems, at least like at this scale, that over 30% of your time is dedicated to support the more tools that we can create to scale that support, the more sustainable the team will be. At my previous company, we had office hours and we had on-call roles. And so every week there would be a new designer that's on call, they would manage office hours, designers would sign up for office hours to get feedback on the componentry. They could also reach us on a Slack channel that was like a public channel so that when they asked a question, everyone could get the value in that answer. Additionally, just like very robust documentation on the component library itself. When someone is like, I don't like the way that this operates or like I'm confused about why we decided that, it's really nice to be able to point to like some hard documentation that's like, this is why we came up with this and this is like the usage and examples that we recommend for this. Simple things like do's and don'ts in the documentation can really be effective in that way. 
I want to I want to drill into the documentation piece because that is something I'm See, also curious about. Like I've spun up my share of zero height sites and I've went all in on Storybook or tried to and I've tried moving things into Figma or Notion. Like how do you think about where documentation should live? And I'm really curious, like how much of it does live in Figma and, and what types don't make sense for it to live in Figma? I think that the best design systems documentation is that that acts as a bridge between design and engineering so that like those unique users can feel more connected to their partners in another function. In the past, all of our documentation at Dropbox kind of like lived in two separate spots. Design documentation lived in Figma because that's where designers were. And so it's really easy to like right click, go to main component, read the documentation. From there, we could link to the storybook examples, but having that source of truth so close to where our users were working meant that there was no excuse for them to say like, oh, I didn't read the documentation. That being said, when we released the design system at Dropbox, we had extremely robust documentation. It was very thoughtful, thorough, and long. And I think that it's not uncommon for designers to not read it. I think that material design is like so many people's North Star for what a documentation site should look like for a design system. But like the material design use case is so different than the use case for an internal design system. Material, it's like broad sweeping external user. And here it's like likely the people reading your documentation are people that you have a relationship with. And so the approach that I really want to take at cash is that our documentation when we're releasing this new version of the design system is very, very limited. It's essentially like one step above a sticker sheet. And I want to hear from our users and I want to get feedback from our users. Like what are the common questions they're asking? Mm. What is the documentation that will work for them? Ultimately, I don't think it's paragraphs and paragraphs of text, but really kind of giving that like quick, do's and don'ts, best practices, examples, usage guidelines, that can be super, super helpful to them and isn't like a huge overhead task for our team to develop. I love that idea of creating like a more nimble foundation. We're not trying to figure out every possible question that someone might have on day one, but just like put something out there and see like, okay, what questions are coming up and, and then how can we answer those more proactively? Are there other things that you think can really help a design systems team evangelize adoption of a system? I don't think that 100% adoption is ever like the goal because the design system is like a product created for the masses. We solve like the most common use cases, but there's always going to be like needs within a product to have unique components. Building relationships with other product design managers help garner adoption. And that was like someone in their crit every week was asking if they had gone to the systems team, if they had gone to office hours. I would participate in critiques at higher levels where it was like everything that went up for a review, I needed to look at and see if it was using the system properly. On the other side of it, like if you get an engineering org that's really dedicated to using the system, and you're getting them looking at Figma files and identifying when it's not using the system, 
you can also build a culture in engineering where they'll push back and say like, hey, I noticed you like built a custom button. Can we use the design systems button? And I don't think that many organizations have successfully created that culture where like engineers can push back on designs. And so having that Slack channel where we had all of our consumers from design and all of our consumers from engineering, those conversations could happen live. And this is kind of like, unfortunately, like bad cop mentality, I think. Like we often get called the design police or anything like that. But if an engineer would go to our public channel and ask for how to override this thing in the system, I would comment and be like, who's the designer that's asking you to override this? Have a conversation with that designer, get to a place where they are using the system, and then that override is no longer needed. You need to build that culture. Sometimes it can be like tricky to be like, name your designer so that I can go talk to them, but it helps build engineering confidence in like, I don't need to just take everything for face value and I can give design feedback before handoff. Something you said in terms of full adoption not being the goal made me think of a line that Dan Mall shared with me a couple months ago, which was basically how he thinks too many design systems teams put adoption on the pedestal as like, this is the metric that we care about. And in reality, he was more interested in the percentage of product kickoffs that design systems get invited to. Do you have a take on that? I think that what that flags for me is the cultural shift with design systems being considered from the beginning. And unfortunately, I've had way too many conversations to count where a manager is like, oh, and then we'll, when we're doing final polish, we'll figure out how it works with the design system. Or, oh, we're a beta product, and so like we're not going to use the design system right now. When we're ready to like go to GA, we'll like make sure that it works with the design system. Both of those conversations are really hard for me because I believe in the value of design systems to improve velocity and to solve these low-level problems so that you can focus on bigger product thinking, strategic user experience challenges. And so like the more product kickoffs you can be at, the more systems thinking they have at the beginning of their process and the less you're likely to be kind of that like icing on the cake at the end. You talk about this idea of design systems being culture change disguised as a UI kit, which I love that line. Is there more to unpack there for what that actually looks like in an organization? Yeah, I think that like I've seen it play out in a few ways. I think Ben Callahan recently had like a hot take on this that was like a healthy design systems team will distill and magnify the healthy practices of an org while also exposing and challenging unhealthy ones. And how I've seen this play out with leadership and like unhealthy leadership practices is they think that like, if we have a design system and people are using the design system that you're going to have a high quality product and they are like absolving their responsibility to like have rigorous critiques and rigorous reviews. Using a design system doesn't ultimately mean that you're going to have a beautiful product or that like you you have taste or you have quality. Design systems can be culture change in a number of like axes or at different levels. I think that at the IC level, like I talked about, you're really transforming a group of product designers to be more collectively incentivized 
to like build with the design system for the greater good of having a more cohesive product. So many product designers are like really hyper-focused on their vertical. They don't have the horizontal view that you have from a systems team perspective. You hear about the unicorn designer or the rockstar designer. Those are like people that you really have to get close with on design systems because they're like the ones that want to detach components because they don't meet their needs. Mm-hmm. And the more that you can like tighten the relationship with those people so that they're advocates of the system and they're working with you to evolve the system, the more healthy of a culture you can create. On the flip side, leadership needs to understand that a design system is just one facet of like how you create quality products. I've experienced leaders who think that just because designers are adopting the system means that the product will be high quality, that they don't need to have rigorous critiques or rigorous design reviews. And when it does not ship a high quality product, even if it's using the system at the foundational level, they're quick to blame the design system and the design systems team. And like design systems are the, the floor, not the ceiling. We're, we're basically just like the lowest common denominator for shared design decisions. You can make hideous things with any design system and you need ways in order to like build structures so that designers are supported in building quality products. The more rigorous critiques, the more rigorous reviews, I think really help create culture change that results in like better experiences for our end users. I love that. I love even thinking about design systems as the floor. I also want to make space in this conversation to talk a bit more about some of the hard skills and tooling too, because I'd love to get your perspective on that specifically because you were part of the Figma variables beta with Dropbox. So can you give us a little bit of a behind the scenes to get an understanding of what that adoption process looked like? We were really lucky to be part of that beta and the staff IC designer on my team worked really closely with the team at Figma, Jeremy Tiniano. He was on this group, this working group at Dropbox that was already starting to think about what the evolution of our visual identity system would look like. And so we really leveraged variables to experiment with a new visual language. Our primary color shifted, our type scale shifted a bit. We rounded the corners on some of our components. We're able to use variables to do that work so that that transition for designers was really seamless. And I think that's something that like design systems love to say, like when we make new design decisions, they'll scale and you won't have to update it because it's not hard coded, you're referencing tokens. And we were actually able to like leverage this tool to turn on that switch. At the same time, we released dark mode. And so we were able to kind of bifurcate the variables into several different themes. You said the word tokens, and I think a lot of people you know, on Twitter maybe would just be like, yeah, variables equals tokens, tokens equals variables. But I've also seen you talk about this idea of variables being a much broader concept and tokens are one flavor of that, which I thought was pretty unique. Can you expand on that a bit? When I talk about tokens and variables and how I see them relating to each other, it's kind of like how I would relate clothing to personal style. Like tokens are the largest thing that we're thinking about in terms of variables right now. They have the most impact to variable features. Similarly, like your clothes are like the biggest part of your personal style. And when people think about personal style, they automatically think about clothes. 
but there's so much more to that variables and to style that kind of grow with maturity or like grow to really advance that concept. And so I'm really excited about the use of variables with things like language. I think that so many product designers that I know design for like an iPhone 15 in English. Uh. <laughs> and like, <laughs> is that- I feel convicted. <laughs> That's great. That means that like we can test it on our devices because we always have like the latest and greatest and we're based in the US and maybe focused on English as our primary language. But like the way that we can really scale our skill set is by like testing in things like German that are always breaking UI. And having that just like that ability to unlock that feature really quickly so that you're, it's part of your natural process is huge. I think that other things like how content design teams scale their ability to have cohesive language in the products is like huge with variables. I've seen so many instances where like next, continue, go, like all these different ways that you might have language documented on a primary action are just like decisions made at the product designer level that create these inconsistencies for end users and erode trust. And so like the way that we can use variables for strings, common strings, that unlocks like huge potential with scaling content. Yeah, I'm interested in that too. You could see a world where Figma variables, especially if you're not limited to the four modes, could start to function as almost this lightweight CMS built directly inside of Figma that everyone could rely on. We're not quite there yet, but it is a trend that I kind of am trying to keep a finger on the pulse of just to see how it evolves. And that's why I appreciate them naming it variables because it like unlocks this potential future that goes beyond how we think of tokens. One last question on Figma variables. I'm curious to hear more about how they are aligning with the release of the system at cash. Like how big of part are Figma variables right now? And can you shed a little bit of light on how a team like cash introduces variables into a system? It was like such an opportune moment where the system wasn't fully established or released when variables came out. And so there was plenty of rework to be done to get that into the first release of the system. So everything that we're releasing has dark mode theme capabilities. We're training designers on using variables. All of our foundations leverage variables and it's very easy for designers to choose between like spacing variables or like border radius variables. And having that as the first release is huge versus having to do retroactive work. I want to end by speaking to someone who's listening and maybe they've been like a product designer for a few years. They're really interested in systems and they're just trying to learn a bit more about how they can set themselves up for success for a potential transition. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the different ways that a candidate who's applying for a design system role can stand out and like what you are looking for in this type of person. I think that people commonly think that like a good design systems designer is a really good Figma user or like they like build really beautiful components. And I think that that's definitely part of it. But I think that like fundamentally 
successful design systems designers are like intrinsically motivated to work on large, hairy, horizontal problems. They're the ones that can like really see the forest for the trees and want to be the one that's like bringing people together and building those connections. And so the more that you can highlight that horizontal outlook and that horizontal work, and also the type of people that are like, nobody told me to do this, but I saw the need and I like brought it together and ultimately it resulted in something bigger than my own influence. That is like a huge sign for me of like a, a strong systems thinker. I think also like design systems is a great place for people that consider themselves hybrids because like you're always wearing many hats, whether that's like you do some front end development or maybe you kind of dabble in product management. You're doing many different things and playing many different roles. And it's not like a cleanly distinct um, job description all the time. Joey Banks is like a very exceptional example of a design systems designer. And that's not because of his incredible detail-oriented component libraries, but the fact that he's building these libraries for the community, that he has all of these like open opportunities for mentorship. The more successful design systems are the ones that have those like relationships to help up-level the craft of other designers. But the more you can see that like your craft is scaling the craft of others and like you're really intrinsically motivated by that, I think makes you a successful design systems designer and something that I really look for in candidates. I love those points. And I like how it keeps coming back to communication skills and mentorship. And you talked about this 30% support number. Are there any other traits of like a high performing design systems designer that you think maybe get overlooked when we talk about the discipline? I think that resiliency is huge. A release of a new system is like a very celebratory moment. And it often happens like once in your time at that company, if that. And so like the continued motivation to want to maintain this system as it grows and also being so close to your users who are giving you feedback every day like your your closest work friend is the one that's detaching the components all the time like having that resilience to be like you know what i'm just going to continue on this journey because i have bigger motivations beyond the daily grind of the component usage i think that that is huge because it's really a never-ending task i love it well Lauren, this has been amazing. You are a wealth of knowledge and just really appreciate the opportunity to get some of these insights that you've been thinking about and, and lessons that you've been learning over years. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the questions.